Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopes and today I'm here with Dr. David Barish. He is Professor of Psychology Emeritus at the University of Washington in the US. He has written, edited or co-authored 40 books including ones on human aggression, peace studies, and the sexual behavior of animals and people. He is a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science and has been the recipient of several honors. His books include Homo Mysterious, Evolutionary Puzzles of Human Nature, Buddhist Biology, Ancient Eastern Wisdom Meets Modern Western Science, Approaches to Peace, A Reader in Peace Studies, and through a glass brightly, using science to see our species as we really are. So, Dr. Barish, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It's really a pleasure to have you on. You're most welcome, Ricardo. It's my pleasure as well. Okay, great. So, I mean, I have a lot of things that I want to ask you about because I'm really fascinated by the fields of sociobiology and evolutionary psychology uh, and also, of course, evolutionary biology specifically. Uh, and it seems to me that a very interesting thing that we have in those fields is that even though sociobiology has existed for the past four decades or so and evolutionary psychology for the past uh, three decades that there are still some very particular aspects of human behavior that we are yet to fully explain from an evolutionary perspective or to have a fully developed evolutionary account of those things and for example in your work you talk a lot about human mating and the evolution of polygamy and monogamous systems and things like that uh, and i mean but perhaps first let me start with this because there are very specific aspects related to women like for example concealed ovulation that are somewhat of a conundrum because particularly in other primate species uh, close to us um, females do not conceal ovulation they have what we call estrus and that doesn't really happen in women but on the other end isn't it also the case that recently people have been finding that uh, ovulation is not 100% concealed in women because when they're going through the luteal phase uh, of, um, of the, their menstrual cycles, they, they seem to, uh, to show some signs, physical, uh, both physical and behavioral, that they're going through ovulation. I, I mean, what, what would you like to say about that? Well, that's a, an, an intriguing issue for sure, and it's actually one of many areas in which the, the reproductive biology of women in particular is much, in its own way, much more mysterious than is the reproductive biology of men. And I don't mean to sound sexist about this, but uh, it's simply a, a biological reality. Um, now, with, with regard to uh, concealed ovulation, Ricardo, uh, it's certainly true that, um, well, 
first of all, ovulation is a very important biological phenomenon, and it would be almost unimaginable if it was totally hidden. There was no indication whatsoever. After all, at the time of ovulation is when a woman is the, the, the most fertile. And this is a very important time. Uh, uh, and so we, we now know that there are many subtle behavioral changes that women show at the time of ovulation. They're more likely to travel from their homes, interestingly. They're more likely to reveal more skin when they go out. Uh, some there, so that there are some rather subtle signs of, to some extent, increased sexual interest. Um, at the same time, it's particularly notable that if you compare our species with our uh, non-human primate relatives, notably, say, chimpanzees or bonobos, nonetheless, there is a huge difference between the way in which ovulation is clearly obvious among chimpanzees, say, and really, by contrast, dramatically hidden among humans. If you, if you go to a zoo, it, it, it doesn't require a lot of biological sophistication to determine when a female chimp is an estrus. She gets this huge pink cauliflower-like growth on her bottom. Women experience nothing whatsoever like this. And so we must ask, among other things, why is this? Why is it such a relative secret? And to some extent, it's even kept a secret from the women themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and as biologists, I have to say, we really don't know. There are a number of hypotheses as to why this may be, um, not the least of which is if women were able to, if they indicated, if they manifested when they were in estrus, as clearly as do chimpanzees, say, a number of very peculiar things would likely happen, not the least of which would be a great deal of chaos in our uh, workplaces, for instance, although presumably women would still wear clothing, and so maybe it wouldn't be that obvious. But, but if you go back to our evolutionary past, um, one very interesting hypothesis and, hypothesis, and it's just one of many, is that if our great-great-great-great-great-grandmothers indicated clearly by their anatomy when they were ovulating, it's entirely likely that our great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers would pay a great deal of sexual attention to them at that time, but would likely take very little interest in them the rest of the time. They would then be all the more inclined, perhaps, to wander off and seek sexual partners among other females who themselves would be indicating when they were most likely to reproduce. And so in a sense, one very interesting hypothesis, and it's just one of many, is that by virtue of hiding their um, maximum fertility, mm -hmm. that to a very large extent our female ancestors were essentially able to keep our male ancestors around for more than just the time when they were fertile. And this may well have been very important not only in protecting them over a prolonged period, but also in being more involved in the defense of their offspring. So, I mean, th th this is just one idea. Uh, I think it's a particularly cogent one, but um, I can go on and describe some alternative hypotheses if you'd like. Um, I'll, I'll mention just one because interestingly it's almost exactly 
the, the opposite uh, of what I just suggested. Namely, so on the one hand, we have the hypothesis that by concealing their ovulation, primitive or ancestral women were able to keep the males around. An alternative would be that by concealing their ovulation um, and thereby hiding when they were maximally fertile, uh, our female ancestors were able to sneak away from their male uh, consorts and have sex with other males. Because again, if they were indicating their receptivity at a given time, then their own males would be defending them so vigorously that they wouldn't have that option. And so you have an entire 180 degree alternative perspective, which is that maybe women, uh, sort of early human women, early women, if you will, um, were able to maximize their own sexual opportunities. Uh, so that's almost exactly the opposite of the other hypothesis. And the truth is, we don't know which is true. It's also possible that neither is true. Um, but I think this is just one of those fascinating evolutionary mysteries that will keep uh, human biologists busy probably for a very long time. So in a sense, the hypotheses that we have on the table and that are the most prominent ones, all of them have in a sense to do with women exploring paternity uncertainty on the part of men because I mean men would never be sure about w which one of them really impregnated the women uh, effectively speaking uh, and if the women get uh, uh, got pregnant and then had a child there wouldn't be sure about who was the real father and, and then perhaps women would more easily manipulate men into investing more resources in them and also uh, perhaps in their offspring. Yes, absolutely. One of the really interesting um, asymmetries between men and women, and this is really true actually for all species that engage in internal fertilization is that whereas females can be a hundred percent confident that the baby who comes out of their body is genetically their child, uh, the male has to essentially take the woman's or the female's word for it. Uh, we have a little phrase in English which is um, mommy's babies, daddy's maybes. And so it's not at all surprising that Females in a variety of species, not just human beings, are really often at great pains to try to um, reassure, if you will, uh, their male partners that those male partners are, in fact, the fathers of the offspring. Because if they're not, or if they have some reason to doubt it, then they may not be particularly inclined to help care for the offspring. And in certain species, particularly human beings, where our offspring are so helpless at birth, it's immensely helpful to have both a male and a female helping out. Now, that's not to say that it's not possible for we, us to have uh, successful uh, single parents. We, we know this. But it, the, the anthropological evidence is really overwhelming that when there are two adults taking care of a, a an infant and, and a youngster, the, that infant and youngster is far more likely to survive and be successful. And that's especially true for our species where we need so much assistance 
where we grow so slowly, where it takes us such a long time to become active, successful members of our group. Mm -hmm. So what I'm going to say now is associated probably not only with concealed ovulation or the evolution of concealed ovulation, but also perhaps with things like uh, menopause uh, and the grandmother hypothesis and even our mating systems, that is, because in humans, uh, human infants are so fragile and they go through such a long period of development, particularly in comparison with other species, we really go through an extended period of development we have to have a lot of parental investment. And I mean, I'm not sure if that would have some implications in terms of uh, the investment that fathers have to make, or if that could be in some way, uh, I mean, if the father is absent, if someone like a grandmother or a grandfather could take his place and invest in their grandchildren or not. But I, I mean, parental investment in our species is really important. Right? Absolutely. It's really crucial. Mm -hmm. um, now, there are a number of human societies in which men don't make a very substantial investment. Actually, in fact, um, one of the unfortunate observations that's true really cross-culturally is that I, I don't know of any human society in which men do as much fathering as women do mothering. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this is literally a, a consequence of the asymmetry and uh, evolutionary con uh, uh, confidence of, of relatedness. Nonetheless, uh, one of the hallmarks of human beings, as opposed to most other mammals, not all, but most other mammals, is the extent to which fathers are involved. Now, now, Ricardo, you, you raised a very interesting question kind of uh, uh, in passing about menopause. So th there's another, this is related to, to, to what we were saying, and in fact, specifically to care of offspring, but many people are not aware, I would guess most people are not aware, that one of the unique characteristics of human beings beyond our concealed ovulation, which is unusual and not absolutely unique, another thing that is closer to unique among humans is the very phenomenon of menopause. We, we take for granted that when a woman reaches roughly the age of 50, her ovulations cease, and we assume that's, just, that's the way of nature, and, and it is. Um, however, this is exceedingly unusual. There are very, very, very few animals in which um, females will stop reproducing when they still have quite often one-third of their, of their active lives still available to them. The, um, the pygmy pilot whale is one of the very few species that does that. Um, now, what's going on here? Why should women stop producing eggs when they still have a lot of life left? And this has been a, a long-standing question as well, and you, you actually alluded to one of the probably the most cogent answer, which is often referred to as the grandmother hypothesis. The, the idea here is, well, first we have to consider that for all living things, as they get older, they do get, I shouldn't say all living things, the great majority of living things, as they get older, they get more feeble. They get somewhat weaker, 
uh, the chances of mortality obviously increase. Um, and for mammals, pregnancy and lactation are stressful. And so a human being, if a human being were not engaging in menopause, and let's say by age 55, 60, 65, 70 was reproducing, the chances are that would have a, a far more substantial mortality effect, that they would die more often than if they were simply breeding at the age of 30. Uh, but nonetheless, as an evolutionary biologist, I'd have to say we would still, in and of itself, expect these women to keep on breeding until they drop dead. I mean, this is what most other mammals do, for instance. Uh, now, in the human case, what seems to be going on is that by virtue of their stopping reprodu reproduction at that point, they are not only keeping themselves alive longer, which again is not in itself a sufficient explanation, um, but what they're doing is enabling themselves by virtue of being alive longer to help take care of their offspring's offspring, that is to say, their grandchildren. Uh, because, of course, at the time of normal female menopause, their offspring are themselves in the process of having their own young, young children. And again, this adds to the opportunity then whereby these grandmothers can help care for their grandchildren. Um, and so if the males are maybe not stepping up to the plate as much as they perhaps ought to, or even if they are. It turns out that, again, if you look at the cross-cultural evidence in anthropology, <clears throat> the, the grandmothers almost always are a substantial contributor to the success of their grandchildren. And so it seems, it seems really entirely likely that at a certain point in a woman's life, pretty much at the age of 50, when the costs the, the potential mortality and morbidity of reproducing increases, and when the opportunities to care for their grandchildren are also increasing, a trade-off is, uh, is apparent at that point. And women are able to do better in terms of their fitness by caring for their grandchildren they were, than if they were attempting to have maybe just one or two more children, which may, in fact, wind up killing them anyhow. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, we have a lot of things to unpack here, but since you refer to the fact that uh, human males, uh, and particularly when they are to fulfill or not the role of fathers, it seems cross-culturally that they do not invest as much as women or mothers in their offspring. Uh, is it also because of the fact that uh, comparing men and women and even males and females across species, uh, men in this case, uh, their sexual or reproductive physiology makes the case for an optimized strategy for them to be to try to impregnate as many women as they can because even going down to the level of g gametes uh, I mean, to produce, uh, to produce male gametes, it's much less metabolically costly than for women to produce eggs in this case. So th uh, that would be another reason why perhaps men uh, don't invest as much as women in children. 
Absolutely. I think, um, I, again, I, sh I should emphasize that there certainly there are some men who are very, very good fathers, and there are some women who are terrible mothers, and there are men who do much more fathering than women do mothering. But as a general rule, this, this pattern is, is a cross-cultural universal. And uh, you, you, you put your finger on it. There are really two primary reasons, as far as we know, for this difference. One is, as we already mentioned, the fact that males, men, have a lower confidence of genetic relatedness to their offspring, even if they're not consciously aware of that difference. Um, beyond that, and again, even if they're not consciously aware of it, by virtue of the, the difference in the gametes that they produce and what happens after fertilization occurs, there's a huge disparity here. A woman produces eggs, in fact, females are defined as that sex that produces relatively large gametes, we call them eggs. Uh, males are defined as the species that, species is the sex that produces a very large number of gametes, uh, each of which are very, very small, we call them sperm. Um, and of course, in a single male ejaculation, there could easily be a hundred million sperm. Uh, in a female's ovulation, there is typically one egg, some cases two, but that doesn't come close to a hundred million. Um, once that, now, now if you actually just look at the metabolic investment, they're not that different. I mean, an egg is very, very small. A male ejaculation in terms of the metabolic material there may actually be larger than that of a female egg. I mean, we can barely barely see uh, a woman's egg, whereas male ejaculate is quite evident. Um, nonetheless, if that egg becomes fertilized, then there is an enormous subsequent investment that the woman has to make. Uh, there's implantation, there's the whole pregnancy, there's nourishment of the young. And then after the baby is born, there's lactation, certainly in mammals. And uh, actually, in terms of the metabolic investment, lactation involves several times more investment uh, in terms of the, uh, the, 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 the amount of calories expended, as does pregnancy itself. So a single pregnancy for a, a, a woman in, fully occupies her reproductive options for nine months. And then often for a year or two or three afterward. For a man, it's, it could be as short as just a few minutes. Um, and the metabolic investment there is very easily uh, um, re reproduced, re reobtained, replaced. Um, and so in theory then, men can go about attempting to inseminate other women. A woman can go about having sex with other men, and many do, but in the course of doing so, they're not increasing their reproductive success. Once they're fertilized, they're fertilized. They can only be fertilized once per cycle, and then that's going to last, as I said, for years. Um, in men, the, the situation is entirely different. Um, and I think this basically explains a great deal of why males in virtually every species, including human beings, are far more interested in uh, essentially sexual variety. Um, having sex with a variety of partners. Now, this doesn't mean that they always do, um, it, uh, or it, and also it, it doesn't mean that women don't on occasion, but the, the disparity in interest in a new sexual partner simply for that in itself is really quite substantial. Um, and and I, I want to add one other thing here, Ricardo, if I may, which is there is, I think, a, um, 
a frequent misunderstanding that some people make, which is referred to as a naturalistic fallacy. Mm-hmm. That is to say that the notion that just because something is natural, it somehow is good and something in which we should engage. Um, I am not saying that men should go out and have as many sexual partners as they can and women should not because their biology inclines them in those two alternative directions. I'm simply saying this is the way of the world. These are our temptations, our inclinations. That doesn't mean that they're necessarily good. There are any number of things that are natural to human beings that I think most of us would agree are not good. I mean, if, if, if I get mad at somebody, I may feel some internal level of desire to punch him in the nose. That may be very natural. It's not good. It's not something I should do, or nor have I ever done. Um, and so the, the fact that certain things are natural doesn't mean they're good. And moreover, I'd go the other way, too. And I think this is really important for your, for your viewers and listeners to understand. There are many things that are unnatural that are good. Just because something is unnatural doesn't mean that it's bad. I mean, here we are talking to each other over Skype. I think that's a good thing. It's fun. I think it'll, I'm hoping it will be interesting and informative for, the, for those listening. Uh, it's unnatural as can be. You're in Portugal. I'm, I'm in, in the United States. And yet, uh, so that's about as unnatural as can be. That we're speaking to each other across opposite sides of the world. Uh, my, my daughter is a violinist, among other things. Well, that was really unnatural for her to learn to play the violin. She had some natural talent, sure. But if it were not for years of effort learning to do it, she wouldn't be able to play the violin. Highly unnatural. And yet, as far as I'm concerned, as far as she's concerned, it's really good. So I think we need to make this distinction as we talk about other things, that which is natural and that which is not. That just because something is natural doesn't mean that it's good. And just because something is unnatural doesn't mean that it's bad. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's a very important point to make because I guess that from its very inception disciplines like sociobiology and evolutionary psychology have got a lot of backlash because people very easily associate scientists describing people's behavior with uh, prescribing something morally speaking or even legally or politically and most of the time scientists aren't doing that at all they're just studying how things are how they work they're simply making descriptions of human behavior and trying to explain where it comes from evolutionarily speaking biologically culturally etc and uh, i mean the prescription side of things is more the work of moral philosophers or politicians or people who make our legal systems and things like that and even for the larger public to discuss but it, it it's very hard to find someone who is a serious scientist that really says that uh, because they've studied something and it has any sort of biological basis to it and thus it is natural that it is necessarily good or that people should stick w- uh, to those kinds of behavior or something like that. I mean, there's that is, ought dichotomy or distinction that people like you made and that is still a very important one for us to keep in mind in these kinds of conversations, right? 
Absolutely, yes. I think that's a really important issue, and it's still confused. <clears throat> Excuse me. I, I think it still confuses and bedevils the discussion on on these issues. Um, you know, if, if if a medical scientist is studying pneumonia or typhoid, um, she's not supporting the appropriateness of pneumonia or typhoid just because it's natural doesn't mean it's good. In fact, it's natural and hence a real problem and a need to study it and try to figure out what we can do about it. And, and I think many of these behavioral characteristics of human beings, certainly not all, but many of them are not very good at all. They're not ethically desirable. Natural selection is not a, uh, a moral arbiter. Natural selection simply works to uh, to promote those traits that happen to work. And working in that sense simply means maximizing the success of genes being projected into the future. It's completely, I wouldn't say it's immoral, it's amoral. It, it has no, there's no moral compass associated with it. And as you said so well, it's really up to us and up to the ethicists and our own ethical judgments to decide whether we like it or not. But the, again, just to pursue this a little bit more, um, th these days, many of us, and I'm included here, have a very strong feeling that, to a large extent, the natural is good insofar as natural environments. Um, I very much support the maintenance and preservation of natural environments and natural species. I try to eat organic foods when I can. They're more natural than those things that are grown with artificial pesticides, etc. So in many ways, uh, because the natural has a, um, uh, a very positive aura, as it should, I think we often then tend to carry that a little too far and consider that anything natural is good and anything mm -hmm. unnatural is bad and that can be really misleading. Mm -hmm. uh, but you're not against things like, for example, genetically modified organisms, at least if they are tested and they are not harmful to human health because uh, though, uh, those are also other technological tools that we can use to improve the way we deal with problems like climate change, right? Absolutely, yeah. I think these are things that have to be taken very seriously and examined on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, unlike many of my friends and colleagues, I am not opposed to so-called GMOs, genetically modified organisms, across the board. Um, we modify organisms all the time. We've done it for thousands of years. It's been called, it's our plant breeding and animal breeding. And, and uh, the, the world has benefited greatly in terms of the increased availability of food, for instance, as a result. Uh, on the other hand, we shouldn't necessarily leap then to any and all genetic modifications unless we know pretty carefully really what the consequences will be. In some of these cases, the consequences will be really good. Uh, adding um, vitamin A, for instance, to certain strains of rice uh, has resulted in a great reduction in blindness among people in Asia. I think that's a really good thing. That's an artificial uh, uh, interception of nature. On the other hand, we need to know very carefully what we're doing when we do this because there can be what we call the, the law of unintended consequences. And so if we're going to make these rather rapid changes and introduce genes very quickly 
into systems where they hadn't been present before, we darn well better look very carefully at what's going on and do a really careful cost-benefit analysis uh, because there may be unintended ecological consequences or medical consequences that we, we really should know about before we leap into them. Mm -hmm. Right. So going back to human sexuality, in your work you explored a lot the topics of monogamy and polygamy. And I mean, uh, I've been talking with a lot of people, psychologists and anthropologists, and uh, they give me different accounts of human mating systems. So it's as far as I understand it, or as I know, uh, more than 80% of human societies that, that have been studied uh, allow or allowed for polygyny. Uh, but there are also a lot of anthropologists that say that the standard uh, human mating system is the one of serial monogamy. So uh, what is your position there? Because it seems to me that uh, in polygynous societies there are uh, a couple of men, the ones that are higher in the social hierarchy, that really can have access to more than one woman and marry more than one woman, and the rest of them uh, have one wife or zero wives. Uh, so pr pr would that be the right account there and to, to try to combine those two different accounts that people have, that perhaps uh, most human societies have allowed for polygynous practices, but because there are not enough women for all men to be polygynous or to have polygynous marriages, uh, most of the men uh, still uh, are forced to be monogamous either monogamous or, as you just indicated, or to be bachelors. Bear in mind, again, if there is an equal sex ratio, as there more or less is in all human societies, uh, except when people come along and start modifying it artificially by uh, female infanticide, for instance, uh, you, you can't very well have, have, have a large number of men with multiple wives and also have the remaining men also have wives because there aren't going to be enough women to go around. Um, now, th this is, a, by the way, again, Ricardo, I think a case where the, the question of, of, of is and ought comes into play, um, because what I'm going to say should not be taken as indicating that I think polygyny is a good thing. Mm -hmm. However, there is really no doubt, simply looking at things as a biologist, that human beings are naturally polygynous. We're not naturally monogamous. If you were a, if, if there were a, a, um, uh, a uh, uh, zoologist from Mars who suddenly arrived on Earth and started observing our species, he or she or, or, or it would doubtless conclude that human beings are naturally polygynous. And to some extent polyandrous as well. That is to say, women will seek multiple male partners, but usually on the side, on the slide, less obviously, men will seek multiple partners historically and anthropologically much more overtly. Um, and, and the reasons for this are, are, are quite impressive. Um, I, I can give you a very quick 
rundown on, on why this is. Some of the main reasons for assuming, for our knowing, really, it's not just assumption, we know that human beings are naturally this way. For instance, um, men are generally larger than women, they're generally stronger than women, they have a larger amount of muscle mass. Now again, there are some women who are bigger and stronger than some men, etc. But as a general rule, that, that pattern certainly holds. That's consistent with all other animal species in which the males compete with each other for access to the females. Those that succeed, and the reason it's the males who are competing is that those who will succeed are the ones who wind up with more than their share of women, more than their share of females. And so when you have what we call uh, sexual dim dimorphism, significant differences in the body type of males and females, almost always that reflects polygyny, with the males being larger, stronger, and that difference is due to the fact they're competing with each other for access to more than their share of the females. And the ones who win are the ones who are larger and stronger, and hence that's how you get this disparity in the, uh, the, the basic body types of male and female. Beyond that, there's a sexual dimorphism when it comes not just to physical types, but to behavioral inclinations. There, this is an overwhelming tendency that men are far more aggressive, far more violent than our women. Again, there are some women that are more violent than some men. But if you look cross-culturally, you look at murder rates, you look at, you look at the, the, um, the killing professions, if you will, inevitably it's the men, not the women. The men are the ones who fight with each other far more than women. Women fight sometimes with each other, and more often they fight in a subtle way of uh, psychological undermining, but men are more likely to be much more overt about it. Again, that's consistent with this harem formation or a striving to be a harem master. Um, I'll give you a few other reasons why we know that, that men are, that, 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 that human beings are this way. Um, there's a fancy term which is not just sexual dimorphism, but sexual bimaturism. Now, now here's something we, we take for granted without often thinking about it. Women become sexually mature, girls become sexually mature earlier than do boys. Um, again, that's just part of the way of the world. You, you go to, uh, you look at children who are maybe 13, 14, and the girls not uncommonly will tower over the boys. Uh, they'll be bigger, they're taller, they grow more rapidly. When they're 14 or 15, the girls may well be on the verge of being sexually mature, the, the, the boys really are not. And the, the girls are more socially mature as well. Now, if you think about this um, uh, biologically, it's peculiar. Because given that the women, females, have to make a much greater physiological investment in their reproduction, one would think that they should wait until they are older, larger, uh, and more able to withstand the, the, the strains and stresses of pregnancy. Whereas the boys, since all they're doing is making sperm, you know, you can start making sperm at age 12, 11, 13, whatever. Um, it's no great stress. And yet the, the pattern works the other way around. Boys, men typically don't become socially and sexually mature until they're older than, than, the, than the girls. The reason for this, again, and you find this in every other animal species where you have this, these social patterns, is that, yes, the females, the girls, 
have a somewhat greater physiological stress when it comes to breeding, but the boys have a much larger stress, if you will, really, which is the social stress, competitive stress. Imagine a young elephant seal or a young elephant or a young lion who attempts to reproduce when he's really kind of a, an adolescent, uh, he's going to have a heck of a time. He's going to be beaten up by the older, larger, stronger males who are competing with each other for access to the females. So it is adaptive for them to wait uh, until they're low, older, larger, maybe even a little smarter. Um, and so what you have again in this sexual bimaturism is a pattern that points very strongly to the fact that it's the males who are competing with each other to access to more than one female. I'll mention just two other factors without going on too long in this one thing. Um, anthropologists are very clear um, that prior to the sort of uh, cultural homogenization that came with colonialism, the great majority of human societies were preferentially polygynous, harem-forming. Um, Monogamy is really a, a, a very recent event in our, in our human history. Um, and one last one that, again, is very powerful. Uh, more recent studies looking at the genetics of human populations have found that there is actually um, much less diversity in Y chromosome genes than there is in the um, um, mitochondrial DNA, which is found only in the female. Y chromosome is found only in males. Mitochondrial DNA is passed on only in women or females. Uh, another way of saying this, what this means is that in our history, a relatively small number of males had a very large number of the offspring. Hence, there's not much diversity or much less diversity in Y chromosomes. Whereas by contrast, if you look at the mitochondrial DNA produced by, by and passed on by women, uh, there's very little diversity because most women get to reproduce, got to reproduce. Not most men did, only those men who had, quote, a harem of some sort. Um, and so historically, again, biologically, and every evidence that we, all evidence we had is that human beings were not monogamous. Now, just to get back again one quick time to what we were saying earlier, that doesn't mean that monogamy is a bad thing and polygyny or polyandry is a good thing. It just means that that is a big part of human nature. If we want to be monogamous, and many of us do, it doesn't mean it's impossible, it, but it does mean that we should follow the Socratic advice, know thyself. And we should know that if you want to be monogamous, and if you want your partner to be monogamous, both should know you're going to be to some extent swimming against the biological current. Not so much that you can't do it, but you should be aware that it, it's going to require real work because that's not the way our human nature is predisposed. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. It may even be a very good thing. But again, I think that degree of self-awareness is really important if we want to live whatever lives we want to live. We need to know what our inclinations are, all the better to struggle against them if we choose to do that. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying we should choose to do it either. I'm not a, a sort of an ethical ayatollah. I'm not telling people what to do. But I am saying if you know what you want to do, then you should know yourself as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, I mean, if 
uh, uh, humans are really naturally polygamous or in this case more specifically polygynous isn't it harder to explain the evolution of emotions like jealousy I don't think so. I think jealousy would fit in very, very well, um, unfortunately. From the male perspective, the male jealousy is, the, the male harem masters, in fact, if you look at other animals, as well as human beings under those circumstances, the, the, the harem masters are constantly looking around to see who's challenging them, who is trying to take over, who's trying to sneak in amongst their females, and often there are many males who do. Um, and not uncommonly in many species, there's an overthrow at some point. And so sexual jealousy on the part of males makes perfect biological sense. From the female perspective, again, if you are um, one of many women, females made it to one man, there's likely to be a substantial amount of jealousy and competition among your colleagues, each of whom is seeking to get a little more than perhaps your share and worried that someone else is going to get more. So in a sense, a polygynous situation uh, actually leads to greater sexual jealousy than does a monogamous one. But at, at the same time, I want to add one other thing, which is a, um, a little bit counterintuitive. When I speak about human polygyny, for instance, uh, within the audience, I can detect, and often by virtue of the questions raised, the men will kind of be licking their chops and saying, oh my gosh, I wish I had lived in those days, you know, I would have 8, 10, 12, 20 wives, wouldn't that be wonderful? Well, what they're failing to understand is something we talked about a little bit earlier, which is um, in a, a regime of polygyny, chances are very, very great that they would not be the harem master. It, it reminds me a bit of those people uh, who claim with complete absurdity that, you know, in a previous life they were Napoleon, you know, uh, or Cleopatra. Well, I mean, it, if you take that ridiculous notion of prior existence seriously, which I, which I don't, but if you do, let's say, just for the sake of argument, the chances are much, much, much greater that they weren't Napoleon. They would have been some poor guy who died out on, out on the Russian steppes uh, during the invasion of Russia in 1812. Um, and they wouldn't have been Cleopatra. They would have been someone who, who uh, was one of the slave girls, for instance, at, at best. In, in other words, to, to relate this to, to harems and polygyny, um, if you're in a society in which, say, men, some men have ten wives, for every case of that, there are nine men who get no wives at all. And so, in that sense, a, a monogamous arrangement is actually a great benefit to men. And polygyny is not, in a sense, it's not really as abusive of women as many people think. I'm not saying it's not abusive, it certainly can be and often is, especially if the women are uh, dragooned into being members of a harem or multiple wives when they're very, very young and don't have any say. But um, the women in question were likely to be associated then with very wealthy, powerful men and get the resources they need to reproduce. It's the men who get left out. And so by virtue of monogamy, men are actually permitted Men who wouldn't otherwise, the great majority, say in our example, 90% of men who wouldn't have a, a mate at all, 
instead of being left horny, resentful, excluded bachelors, are given a very real possibility of having a mate. And so monogamy is really a sort of a democratizing arrangement that is, in a sense, much more beneficial to men, paradoxically, than it is to women. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, particularly in big societies like the ones we have nowadays, monogamy uh, can be important also to stabilize those societies because if too many men were to be left without uh, access to a female partner, uh, particularly in the case of young men, I mean, it's very easy for them to resort to some... Uh, uh, tactics that we consider negative in modern societies, particularly the ones associated with risky behavior and with violence and crime. And so perhaps that's the reason why most modern scientific uh, societies have decided Uh, not consciously, of course, but to, to implement uh, monogamous systems. Yes, I mean, that's, that's a, um, a very impressive hypothesis. It's, it's not absolutely the only one, but I think it's one that is particularly effective. People ask, well, okay, if we are naturally predisposed to polygyny and to some extent polyandry as well uh, on the sly, uh, why monogamy? Why is it there at all? Why has it become so popular? Um, and why is it pronounced and, and recommended so strongly by uh, Judeo-Christian religious traditions, for instance. Well, first of all, if you go back in the Bible, it wasn't all, that wasn't always the case. I forget how many wives Solomon was reputed to have. I think something like 900. So it's not like uh, monogamy is the, the biblical recommendation. Um, but it is the more recent historical recommendation. And I think it's exactly for the reasons you mentioned, namely, It is a way of um, increasing the likelihood of there being s social harmony and peace, as opposed to having all these frustrated males um, willing to engage in all sorts of illicit, illegal, violent activities in the hopes of obtaining a mate ultimately for themselves. Um, now, that's not to say they're consciously saying, I'm going to be violent so as to have a mate. But again, in terms of our biological history, that is one of the main ways in which reproductive success was obtained. That's the way in which you get a harem, for instance, if you're lucky enough or foolish enough to try to do so. Um, and so by, vert, by instituting monogamy and requiring it, essentially, I think it's a way in which societies are able to tamp down what would otherwise, what is otherwise the sort of biologically inclined source of instability. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So uh, another thing that is part of human sexuality and perhaps even the sexuality of other species that I think is even harder to explain than the evolution of monogamy is homosexuality. And I mean, there are several different hypotheses on the table and I think that uh, not a single one of them until now at least has been Uh, completely demonstrated to be true. There are, there are some of them that, that are more evidence to them than others. 
there are hypotheses like for example what we could call the uncle hypothesis where people say that perhaps homosexuality evolved uh, more, more specifically in the case of men because they talk about certain societies like the ones in Hawaii in Samoa specifically where uh, they they really uh, studied the fact that uh, homosexual men perhaps in also invest in the children of their brothers or sisters and so they would help with that there are other accounts that say that perhaps there are uh, um, a set of genes that work in women and that predispose them to be attracted to men that in certain situations due to sexual recombination they occur in men also and that would be what would predispose them to to prefer other men sexually speaking as well uh, i mean there are a lot of different hypotheses on the table none of them has been uh, completely validated uh, at least for now uh, i mean what would you have to say about that specifically do, do you think that perhaps one of them makes more sense than the other or not it's hard to say at this point. I think there there may be one or two that seem somewhat more uh, promising. But at this point, you're you're absolutely right that the the uh, this is one of the great mysteries of biology. One thing, by the way, that I I should start off by saying that is quite clear is that there is a biological underlying biological basis for homosexuality. There's just no question about that. This is not a lifestyle choice as some conservative theologians and fund religious fundamentalists like to claim. Uh, there's just no question about the underlying biology of homosexuality. If you look at identical twins raised apart, uh, the, 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 the concordance, as we say, between them is very, very high, even if they live in very different environments, etc. And um, also the fact that it also occurs in other species. That's right, and there is homosexuality in many other species. Usually for most other animal species, it occurs with particular frequency among the juveniles, uh, and a lot of that seems to be practice, if you will, uh, combined with um, a degree of uh, frustration because the individuals in question aren't sufficiently adult in their size, in their muscularity and their competitive ability to be able to compete with others who are more heterosexually involved and so they tend to express their heteros their their their, their um, uh, sexual impulses however they can um, in fact masturbation is also not unknown among many animals as well much less frequent among adults probably for the same reason but when, when it comes to humans again uh, there are a number of hypotheses, none of which are altogether satisfying. As you mentioned, it has been found that there are some societies, particularly in the Pacific, in which uh, homosexual men in particular will help take care of, of their relatives. Um, and this is somewhat cogent because it explains how a genetic underpinning can be promoted. Because in order for homosexuality to be promoted at a biological level, uh, the actual genetic predisposition has to be promoted. 
Um, and, and so one way to do it would be by a manifestation of what we call inclusive fitness maximization or um, kin selection. Uh, the problem is that hasn't worked out in many other societies. It does work in some, but it doesn't work in others. Um, another possibility, uh, and again, this is one of many, is that it may relate um, in part to our history as polygynous species, once again, in that um, a male who is able to, who, who is uh, essentially able to hide his or her heterosexuality uh, while also satisfying some of his um, sexual inclinations um, would be less threatening to uh, the male harem owner um, and so less susceptible to this sort of vigorous male-male competition that might otherwise wind up getting him killed or beaten up or otherwise injured. Um, on the other hand, he would still have to be able to promote his own genotype in some way in order for this to select for homosexuality. And so what we'd really be talking for, for, for the, 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 uh, the male version, essentially, for male homosexuality or gayness, if you will, um, in, in order for this to happen, the, the males in question would have to not be exclusively uh, engaging in same-sex preference. They would have to also be, have, they would have to have some heterosexual inclinations. And this relates to what you mentioned earlier about, well, there, another possibility is that some women find men who are less than 100% uh, um, over-the-top male in, 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 in some ways and have some gay inclinations may be more attractive, uh, but they would still, those men would still have to be willing to engage in heterosexual acts. And of course, many men, maybe the majority who we would describe as homosexual are actually bisexual. There's a problem here, though, in that that also uh, denies the fact that for many gay men, there's nothing effeminate about them at all. Uh, there is a significant part of the, the gay male culture that's very, quote, masculine. Um, and, um, and so I'm not sure that that hypothesis would apply in terms of making them more appealing to women. So it's a, it's a very complicated picture and one for which we don't really have a, a good answer. There are some answers in terms of pure physiology having to do with hormone levels within the uterus um, and that are related to one's birth order, for instance. None of the, they, they all are superficially intriguing. None of them have actually panned out to, to be uh, dispositive, as we say. None of them are really robust explanations yet. Whoever comes up with a really good explanation for homosexuality in human beings uh, deserves a Nobel Prize and may well get one, but I don't see it happening in the immediate future. It's one of those enduring mysteries. If you will. Mm -hmm. And another problem here, and perhaps it's also, it also adds to the picture in terms of the difficulty that is to explain uh, human homosexuality, is that 
It is not even evenly distributed between men and women. I mean, when men, uh, when women, I mean, are homosexual, most of them tend to be bisexual, in fact. But in the case of men, I mean, there are many more men that are exclusively homosexual than women. And so that would be another problem to solve, right? Absolutely, yes. And, and again, at this point, we have a number of theories. None of them impress me particularly, um, but that doesn't mean that the phenomenon is not there. In fact, the women often, it's well described, that women are more predisposed to a kind of sexual plasticity or more individual focused. Many, many women will say, you know, for them, the, the, the particular issue that determines their own erotic, loving feelings toward a given person is not whether that person happens to be male or female, but the nature of that given person. They may love a, a, a man, they may also love a woman, but it's not because the man is a man or the woman is a woman, it's because of who the man is or who the woman is. Men are much more likely to be um, somewhat exclusive in their um, preferences. For many men, the notion of having a sexual relationship with another man is just unimaginable, no matter how much they may like that man. Um, and so the, 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 these differences are real. The, the reason for the differences, however, really remains to be seen. I mean, when I titled one of my books, uh, Homo Mysterious, I really meant that we, there's, there's some really intriguing mysteries in human behavior, many, although not all of them, having to do with um, sex and sexuality. Mm -hmm. So now just to talk about the last topic, because we've already recorded more than one hour and I'm getting <laughs> mindful of your time, Dr. Barish. So, uh, I mean, perhaps the biggest mystery of them all, at least for me, is the one of consciousness. I mean, how consciousness evolved, because there are many different ways of tackling the issue of consciousness. I've already had uh, evolutionary psychologists on the show and also philosophers of mind with whom I talked about consciousness. Uh, I mean, there are many different approaches out there. Some of them even uh, say or defend the position of illusionism and they say that phenomenal consciousness does not exist at all or is just an illusion. Uh, and from a strict from a strict biological perspective and even looking at other animals uh, and what they're able to do, uh, particularly in species that we don't have any evidence at all that they are conscious, uh, like for example ants and bees and things like that. I mean, they are really able to perform very complex uh, behaviors and even calculations without having any evidence there for any sort of consciousness. So, I mean, it's really hard to understand why we would need to evolve this mental mechanism uh, in top, on top of the rest that we already have, and also why we wouldn't be able to perform the same complex behaviors that we exhibit without consciousness? 
Yes, again, this is a huge issue, and it may be, I, I would agree with you, it may, this may be the, the most challenging uh, area of um, biological mystery right now. Um, and really, I, th I think there are really three, we can divide up the, the, the quest or the, the, the mysteries of consciousness into three, I would suggest. One of them is sometimes called the, uh, the easy question of consciousness, and it is, in a sense, relatively easy. That has to do with um, where in the brain do certain patterns of consciousness arise. That uh, is the neural correlates of consciousness. Exactly, yes. The, the neural cor correlates, the particular brain regions, the, the nuclei that are especially active with regard to, say, uh, the perception of vision, the, the perception of sound, higher mental faculties. This is simply a question of where they are located and how we can modify them uh, via stimulation or certain drugs. Um, and we, we know a great deal about that. And that's a relatively easy question. The really hard question of consciousness, of course, is the question of how does one go? How do we or any those any animals that do have consciousness? And, and I agree with you that I think ants have very little or none. Earthworms, ditto. Uh, my dogs, I think, have a, probably a great deal of consciousness, or at least awareness. Uh, I'm not sure they have self-awareness as such, but some do, I think. In any case, that the question arising then is, how, does, how do any living things breach this gap between, on the one hand, physical events, the passage of ions across neural uh, membranes, and how does that translate into what the philosopher called qualia, a sense of recognizing perceptions, or not to mention more complex ideas, feelings, pain, originality. This is a really difficult one. I'm not a mystic about it. I think the answer is going to be there somewhere. At this point, though, as much as we know about neurobiology, I don't think we've gotten very far on this at all. We can talk about complex neural networks, but that still doesn't answer the question, how do we go from the uh, physiological, the anatomical, the electrical, to our own subjective perceptions? And Ricardo, I cannot even imagine the kind of finding that would answer that question. Not only do I not think we've answered it or close, I don't even know how we would, what sort of finding would do so. If I came to you and said, Ricardo, you know, I've discovered it. It's, here's this chemical, and I can draw its, uh, it, its uh, structure. Here it is on the blackboard. It's all these chemical, there's carbon atoms, sulfur atoms, nitrogen, blah, blah, blah. There's consciousness. It exists when we're awake. It goes away when we're sleeping. We've got a lot of it. Chimps have a little less. Dogs have less yet. Earthworms have hardly any, and avocados don't have any. <laughs> you know, would that answer the question? Uh, I, I don't think so. Um, and so I don't know how we would, but I do think ultimately we will. Um, there's also the third one, which has actually received very little attention. That's less physiological. These first two have to do with anatomy and physiology of consciousness. And that's the question of the adaptive value of consciousness, which, which you raised also, which is really, which you, you raised particularly, which is aside from how it is, matter, how it is generated anatomically, physiologically, electrically. Why is it there at all? I mean, what one can imagine uh, that instead of human beings as we know them, we were all a bunch of zombies 
who go about our lives eating and sleeping and reproducing and going to work and whatever, um, but without ever having consciousness. Um, so what is the value of consciousness then from an evolutionary perspective, no matter how it's generated? Um, I've done a fair amount of speculation about this, but I have to say it's no more than speculation. I'll give you a very, very brief summary, which is I, my guess is that the adaptive value of consciousness has to do with our ability to self-reflect and hence, as the poet Robert Burns said, uh, to see ourselves as others see us. And, and that's a little nasty in some of its implications, somewhat cynical. I'm hesitating to say it, because, but it's true. Somewhat cynical, the notion that by virtue of consciousness, perhaps, we are able to manipulate others by virtue of trying to imagine how we seem to them and hence, hence to enhance our position in the social world. So we say, well, if I'm really, con if I'm conscious, what I mean by that is not just that I see things and react to them, but that I say, well, here I am and I am, I, I look at myself. If I'm looking at myself through consciousness, that I'm also looking at, well, how do you perceive me? How do the people watching your, your broadcast perceive me? Because of my consciousness, I'm able to think about that. So I put on a, a shirt, you know. <laughs> I tried to get the lighting right, you know. If I was not conscious in that sense, I'm not sure I would be doing that. So it's at least possible that our the adaptive value, regardless of how it's formed, how it's produced, that the adaptive value of consciousness is a way of enhancing our ability to navigate the social world, which often involves manipulating others. Don't get me wrong, I have not manipulated you at all, nor would I nor would I manipulate any of those people watching or listening, but in my heart of hearts, I have a feeling there may be a little bit of that involved. Right. So do you think that there would be any good chance at all for consciousness to be explained as a sort of cultural construct in any way? Because there are at least certain parts uh, of what we deem to be consciousness that are considered by many people to be illusions like for example what we call the self or what or the thing in our minds with which we identify ourselves let's say i think there is that and actually um one of my interests some of my critics say I have too many interests. <laughs> I'm not able to go into any one with the depth that it requires or warrants. But one of my interests is Buddhism. And of course the Buddhists argue quite forcefully and I think effectively that our notion of self is itself uh, misleading. And that we tend, we see ourselves as sort of skin encapsulated egos. Uh, and that that uh, is useful up to a point. I mean, here I am in my chair, there you are in your studio, but, and there's no question about that. But that the self itself, if you will, is not as separate and distinct from those other things in our environment that we recognize. Uh, I have dogs, I have cats, I have horses. Uh, 
I am intimately connected with them, but I'm intimately connected not just uh, uh, emotionally, but my, my uh, various chemicals, carbon dioxide goes in and out. We think, we don't literally think each other's thoughts, but I have a pretty good idea of predicting what they're thinking and they predicting me. And so to some extent, there is, I think, an illusionary, elusive quality to the notion of, of a self as distinct from others. I think it is somewhat misleading. It's somewhat hurtful as well. I think it's hurt us in terms of the way we treat the environment, among other things. So that degree of conscious, that sense of consciousness may be a way in which we mislead our own, I don't want to say our own selves, if the selves don't really exist that much, but we mislead that that mechanism that exists inside our skulls <laughs> uh, into thinking that we are altogether separate from the rest of the world, whereas in fact, uh, as the Buddhists state, and I believe they're right, we, we are not. That's a whole other topic. I look forward to talking to you about that sometime, regarding. Yeah, right. So, I mean, perhaps it would be better for us to end the interview now. Otherwise, if we get into another topic, we will be talking for the next for the next 30 minutes, at least for sure. So, uh, Do Dr. Barish, before we go, would you like to tell people what would be some of the best places on the Internet for them to find your work? Well, probably. I mean, the obvious one it would be would be <laughs> would be Amazon, just because it has the largest array of books. I've written a number of articles, you know, uh, uh, peer reviewed, several hundred. But these days, in the last uh, decade or more, I've been really concentrating on writing uh, writing books, and I try to put most of my ideas in them. Um, I've also gotten very involved in addition to bio biology, and this may seem a bit of a um, departure, but I've gotten very, have been very involved for decades in issues about war and peace, and particularly nuclear war. Um, and I've been writing a lot, a great deal about that, and taking on the question of deterrence, which I think is a great mistake. Um, and um, I'm currently writing a book whose intent is to debunk deterrence. Uh, so perhaps we can actually talk about that, among other things, Ricardo, sometime in the future. Yeah, sure. I really hope that you will accept an invitation for a second interview in the, on the show in the near future, because I really have quite a, a lot of topics you've written down to explore with you, and you have such a huge literary corpus and many different topics that you explore in your work. So uh, anyway, Dr. Barish, thank you a lot again for taking the time to come on the show, and I really love talking with you. You, so. It's been a, my pleasure. You're very welcome, Ricardo. And I want to add that, that you're a, a especially pleasant person to be talking with, because unlike so many people who do interview me, I have the very definite impression that you've actually read many, if not most, of those books that we talked about. So thank you. 
Hello everybody, thank you so much for coming to my channel and for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel on February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. So to keep the channel sustainable, I would really like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Any amount, even $1 would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. You also have the alternative of supporting me on Subscribestar or Paypal. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Peruga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Geline, Jim Frank, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Rivera, Lucas Stafiniak, Sergio Condriano, Yane Haninen and my two producers, Zizar Weber and Rosie. Thank you for all.